Our reading this evening is 1 Timothy and chapter 3. 1 Timothy and chapter 3, and commencing at verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behaviour, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, nor greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be great, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up, into glory. And as ever we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our fifth study in the first letter of Paul to Timothy. And as I said before, God willing, it's my intention that we shall study both of Paul's letters to Timothy together with his letter to Titus in due course. These three epistles are often referred to as the pastoral epistles, perhaps not only because they are addressed to two early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors. We know that both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and both had pastoral responsibility. Timothy was at Ephesus, and Titus served the Lord on the island of Crete. 
and Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that whatsoever took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. And in our studies, I trust that we will see the practical information conveyed by these epistles on many subjects, as well as some vital doctrinal truths. In our last study a month ago, we saw how God has ordained that it is men who should lead corporate worship services. Those men who lead in prayer must be of exemplary character, not being prone to wrath and doubting or disputing. We also saw how when meeting for corporate worship, godly women will dress in such a way as not to attract attention to themselves. Good works and good behaviour become godly women, rather than anything to do with how they look physically. Believers need to concentrate on worshipping God and listening to what he has to say to us when we meet on the Lord's Day and at other times. And anything at all that would distract us from that must be avoided. We also saw in our last study how God has ordained that Christian women are to assume no leadership role in corporate worship. It's perfectly in order for ladies to teach other ladies and children, but they are not to seek to teach men or to seek to be an authority over men in the church in any way. It's God who's decided this. And it's sad when we see women disobeying God in this matter. We considered in our last study the two main reasons for this sad state of affairs. One being the dissatisfaction of women with the role ordained for them, and the other being the reluctance of men to do what they should be doing. Now, we need to be very clear, women are equal to men in the sight of God as regards salvation. God has decreed that it's only men who are to lead and to teach in corporate worship services. The Lord has decreed that women are to be subject to their own husbands and to be subject to the teaching of those men called of God to preach under whose ministry they sit. Let the woman, the scripture says, learn in silence with all subjection. But we have found that it's because some women are unwilling to be so subject that problems have, has arisen. In our last study we also explained why God has decreed that women are to fulfil a role that is subordinate to men. The primary reason for wives to be in subjection to their own husbands is because this is what God intended from the very beginning. And the second reason evidences the wisdom of God's choice since we're told in the scriptures Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. God may be to be a help me, a help me for Adam. But we saw in our last study that she influenced her husband in a way that adversely affected all mankind. If a Christian wife wants to be a true help me, then she will strive to ensure that whatever, whatever she asks of her husband or whatever she suggests to him is acceptable in God's sight and will not lead to 
sin. And we consider that our married woman will only be truly fulfilled if she accepts the role that God has ordained for her. Tonight we shall be considering the whole of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, which is all to do, as you will have seen, with the qualities required in elders and deacons. And we shall see that what Paul wrote holds good for all time, but also that it was of particular significance in Ephesus. You see, false leaders had arisen, as had been foretold by Paul, unspiritual men. And this is why Paul sets out the spiritual qualities required in those men who are to be set apart to lead God's people. Is it not true that the ministry of any church is to a large extent a reflection of its leadership? If the leaders of a fellowship are unspiritual, then this will surely be reflected in the effectiveness and testimony of that fellowship. And so we shall see that Paul provides a spiritual checklist of virtues to be looked for in those men who are going to lead fellowships, characteristic marking our godly teachers and leaders. Now no man is perfect. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, do we not? But those who lead God's people must be seen predominantly to conform to God's standards. So chapter 3 of 1 Timothy begins with this statement. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. As I've mentioned on previous occasions, Paul refers to a true or faithful saying five times in the pastoral epistles. And each and every time the expression precedes some self-evident and very important truth here. Paul is stating the great importance of the leadership role, for as has already been mentioned, the ministry and testimony of any fellowship will of necessity be a reflection of its leaders. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now the Greek word translated here as bishop is the word episkopos. It's a word that can also be translated as overseer, and it refers to the same office referred to elsewhere as elder. Now, there are only two church offices specified in the Bible, namely those of elders and deacons. And so any additional offices are man-made inventions. It's not a problem, if elders are sometimes referred to as bishops or as presbyters, but the Bible knows nothing of archbishops and archdeacons and such like. They're all man-made. And those whom God calls to be elders, he first gives a desire to occupy that position. Now this desire is not a carnal desire for power or for prestige, but a heartfelt desire to do that to which they have been called and for which God has equipped them. You know, there are many men in church leadership today who have never been called of God to occupy such positions. But those who have been truly called will have known a compulsion which they were unable to resist, even if 
if they felt that they were unworthy. To be a church leader is to occupy a worthy and an honourable position. It's to undertake a good work. And this good work can place a heavy burden on those undertaking it. It's a demanding role. But you know, it doesn't follow that every man in a leadership role who is hardworking must have therefore been called to that position. You see, an ability to work hard it isn't of itself sufficient qualify a man for eldership. He must match up to the qualities that are listed here in 1 Timothy 3. So firstly, an elder must be blameless. Now as I've already said, no man is perfect. So we need to understand that the apostle is speaking here of someone being above reproach. A man who has no obvious disqualifying characteristics. Now the Greek word translated as blameless is a word which could be translated as not able to be held. Not able to be held. As in not able to be arrested on criminal charges as it were. And it's only such men of unblemished character who should be considered for leadership roles. And any elder who commits any grave sin should be dismissed from eldership being no longer blameless. An elder must be the husband of one man. Now this qualification has been the subject of much debate and is viewed in different ways even amongst those of us who we might say are in the reform camp. Some people feel that an elder should be a married man since they feel that only a married man can understand the problems that married couples can face including problems bringing up children. They feel that only a married man can fulfil the qualification of ruling his own house well and having his children in subjection with all gravity. However, a widower who chooses not to remarry can do both these things. So some people feel that this verse teaches that a widower couldn't remarry and then be an elder. And to my mind, that's way of being. As is the suggestion that single men shouldn't ever be in the ministry. The Apostle Paul was a single man, as is evident from his first epistle to the Corinthians, so bachelorhood should be no bar to leadership. Contrarywise, bachelorhood is not compulsory in the ministry, as we know is falsely taught by Roman Catholics. What about polygamy? Is Paul saying here that an elder must be monogamous? certainly a possibility, though some feel that polygamy was a practice in Ephesus at that time. And what about divorced men? Can they be elders? If divorce is permitted by the scriptures and the innocent party is truly innocent, why would a divorced man be precluded from leadership? Now one commentator has suggested that the answer to what Paul was actually driving at here is found in the Greek words translated here as the husband of one wife. The husband, which could literally be translated as a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Those in leadership who are married must be faithful to their wives, forsaking all others. They must be one-woman men, having no improper relationship with any other woman. Sexual impurity was common in Ephesus 
And it was vital that any church leader should be above reproach. And it's the same in our own affairs, is it not? Sexual impropriety can ruin a man's ministry, and the fallout can severely damage the fellowships in which they are ministered. All leaders must be one woman men. And any man who fails that test disqualifies himself from the ministry. Elders must be vigilant, ever watchful, understanding that it's their responsibility before God to protect their people from spiritual harm. In the epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 13, we have in verse 17 the following command. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And so we see that there's this two-way relationship between church leaders and those whom they lead, and as with any relationship, it works best when both parties fulfil their obligations. Elders are to be sober or of sound judgment, meaning not that they are to be in any way cold and humorless, but that they can be relied upon to be serious-minded when appropriate, particularly with regard to spiritual and other weighty matters. And they are to be of good behaviour, behaving modestly or respectably, just as we saw how it is becoming for a Christian woman to be adorned with good works, so it is becoming for any leader's behaviour to be seen to be well-disciplined. Elders should be given to hospitality, meaning that they have a reputation for offering hospitality when appropriate. The original Greek word conveys the sense of loving strangers. For it's easy to be hospitable to those we know and love. And hospitality is a virtue which is to be commended in all God's people, not just leaders. So a question for us is, are we found amongst those who are well known for hospitality as we are able? Being apt to teach is a key quality for an elder. Though it has to be said that some people hold the view that a man can be an elder, but not preach. You may have heard of preaching or teaching elders and also of ruling elders, but to my mind, those distinctions just cause confusion. We shall consider that matter in greater depth when eventually we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. But in the meantime, may I just say that in my opinion, every elder ought to be a ruling elder and that every elder should be apt to teach. Now, what does it mean to be apt to teach? Well, does it does not mean that an elder should have such a knowledge of Scripture that he is able to interpret it to the edification of others, to explain in a plain and simple manner, where appropriate, the truths that God has revealed in His Word. He should be able both to illustrate and to defend gospel truth and to be a ready communicator. He should ideally be a gifted speaker, else he will not very well hold the attention of those ESAs to teach. 
We come now to an expression that's been hotly debated, not given to wine, as has the expression not given to much wine, which we shall consider shortly. Now believers are split into two main camps when it comes to what the Bible teaches about the consumption of alcohol. On the one hand, there are those who believe that the Bible teaches that every believer should be teetotal. On the other hand, there are those who believe that the Bible only condemns drinking to excess. And even then, some in that latter group choose not to drink alcohol, even though they don't think it's wrong to do so. My personal view is that although the scripture speaks much of the dangers of alcohol, it does not condemn its consumption out of hand. In fact, the Bible has a few positive things to say about the taking of alcohol in moderation. Therefore, it seems to me to be inappropriate to insist that any elder should be teetotal. We shouldn't ever go beyond what's laid down in the scripture. But we must, nonetheless, insist that it would be wrong for any elder to be associated with strong drink, for any elder to have a reputation as a drinker. Those of you who have authorized version Bibles with notes in the margin, we'll see that the translators offer an alternative rendering here, namely, not ready to quarrel and offer wrong as one in wine. Not ready to quarrel and offer wrong as one in wine. And perhaps they connected this with what comes next, as an elder should be no striker. Now, it may be hard for us to conceive of an elder getting involved in fisticuffs, but the very fact that Paul says that an elder must be no striker reminds us that arguments must be settled with words and not with blows. The situation in Ephesus may have been such that heated arguments were not uncommon, but it can never be appropriate for elders to lose control of themselves. Elders must be patient, not brawlers, and we will see this in Paul's second letter to Timothy, when we get to it in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where Paul wrote this, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now, I've not forgotten the requirement that an elder shouldn't be greedy of filthy lucre, in case you think I've jumped over there. But I thought it would be appropriate that we, we should consider that in conjunction with the other requirement that an elder shouldn't be covetous in any way. Those who God calls to lead his people should consider themselves honoured to have been so called. There should be no question of any man doing in the ministry for the money, for financial reward. And so whenever you see a minister with a lavish lifestyle, you can be fairly confident that he is not a man called of God. An elder must be someone that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Unruly children are a sure sign that a man isn't qualified to be an elder. If a man can't keep his own children under control, then how can he be expected to lead and guide the children of God in a fellowship. It's also implied here that an elder's wife must be in subjection to him. For if a man 
had his children in subjection with all gravity, but also had a wife who was unwilling to be subject to him, this would surely disqualify him from a leadership role for the same reason. Now an elder mustn't be a novice, meaning not that he can't be a relatively young man, but that he mustn't be someone who's only recently come to faith. Timothy himself was a relatively young man. We know this from 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 where Paul wrote, let no man despise thy youth. But Timothy had been a believer for some time and so wasn't a novice in the Christian life. A novice, be he young or old, might become conceited if he was appointed as an elder so early in his Christian life. And this is why only those who have developed sufficiently in their Christian lives should be considered for eldership. Satan, we know, is the accuser of the brethren. He delights to accuse us before our Heavenly Father. And therefore some feel that to fall into the condemnation of the devil is to give the devil cause to accuse us. However, it's also true to say that it was pride which led to Lucifer being cast out of heaven. So Paul may have been saying that any who are guilty of pride are to be condemned for it, just as Lucifer was condemned for it. Now the final qualification for eldership listed in 1 Timothy 3 is that a man must be in good standing outside of the church. We read, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now this is not to say that to qualify as an elder a man must be well thought of by all unbelievers. Any man who takes a stand for the truth will encounter opposition from the ungodly. But what it does mean is that a man should give no just cause for anyone outside the church to criticise his behaviour. He should be known as someone with integrity, someone who is true to his commitment, someone who is honest, someone of good repute. Well, having seen the qualities requiring those to aspire to be elders and perhaps having realised how difficult it is for any man to meet such searching requirements, nonetheless the word of God stands firm. But God is able to raise up men to do his work, not only in leadership, but also as those whose role is somewhat different, but still very important. Those who are called to serve as deacons. Now, some people are of the opinion that elders are only responsible for the spiritual oversight of the fellowship, and that deacons are only responsible or what we might call the practical running of a fellowship. But you know, this may be too restrictive. Whilst it's very true, very likely that the first deacons were those seven men appointed to free up the apostles to minister God's word, as we find that recorded in Acts chapter 6, we need to remember that Stephen, who was one of those seven deacons, was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost, and was an evangelist. And another of those seven, Philip, was an evangelist too. And thus we see that being a deacon need not necessarily 
preclude a man from some spiritual ministry. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find that the qualities required in deacons do not significantly differ from those required in elders. However, it behoves us to examine them nonetheless, particularly noting any differences, but also noting the similarities. Deacons must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy or filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Only men who can be serious when necessary are to be considered for the position of deacon. Deacons must be consistent in their conversation, not double-tongued, which means not saying one thing to one person and something different to someone else. We sometimes use the expression two-faced, do we not, to describe that sort of behaviour. And of course it's something of which we can all be doing. Deacons are not to be given to much wine. And some have felt that this places a less onerous responsibility on deacons and elders when it comes to the consumption of alcohol. However, despite being a firm believer in the fact that every single word in the scriptures is of significance, I sincerely hope that no deacon will ever use verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3 to justify consuming more alcohol than might be considered appropriate for an elder. Deacons, like elders, mustn't be greedy of filthy lucre, and they must also hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, although this latter qualification isn't found in the list for elders, I'm sure it applies equally to elders. Paul uses the word mystery quite often in his epistles, and it refers usually to revealed truth, which was once hidden, but which has now been made manifest. And we'll see a further example of this before we close this evening. But here, the mystery of the faith surely refers to New Testament revelation. Things that were foreshadowed in the Old Testament were now being clearly seen, and were to be believed and held by any who were to hold office in the church. And all those men in office were to live in accordance with the truth revealed to them. Their lives were to be exemplary, their consciences not accusing them. Those who are appointed as deacons must first of all have been tested or proved. We read, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Before a fellowship appoints anyone as a deacon, it should be competent that the person to be appointed is competent and worthy to fulfil the role. The appointee should have demonstrated his suitability. Perhaps there could even be a trial period before any official appointment is made. And then if there are no failings, then the official appointment can go ahead. Some people, would you believe, have claimed that verse 11 of 1 Timothy refers to the qualities required in deaconess. However, there is no such office specified in the scriptures. What we have here are the requirements for deacons' wives, and which, in my opinion, could equally be applied to the wives of elders. The wives of deacons and elders must set an example to others in any fellowship. 
even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. You know, there have been some men who have been disqualified prophets in the church, not because of any fault on their part, but because they have been married to women who have let them down with their unsavory behavior. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have viewed the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Deacons may not have as much responsibility as elders, but they are invested with a certain degree of authority and are also in the public eye. And this is why they too must be seen to be faithful to their wives and to be in charge in their own homes. And those men who serve churches faithfully as deacons will be quite rightly held in esteem in their fellowships and will be emboldened in their Christian lives to serve the Lord more zealously. As we have regularly noted, Paul wrote to both Timothy and Titus seeking to help them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. If he had been present in person, that is Paul, then he would no doubt have dealt with various matters himself. And this is why he wrote the following words. These sins write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, we know from elsewhere in the scriptures that sometimes Paul had a mind to travel somewhere or to visit friends, but we also know that his personal preferences were overridden at times by God the Holy Spirit. So if he couldn't stand shoulder to shoulder in person with Philip, with Timothy rather, at Ephesus, then the next best thing he could do was to give Timothy the best advice as to how the church there should be overseen and run. There is a right way, but there are also wrong ways for church affairs to be administered. There's also a right way, but many wrong ways for people to conduct themselves in God's house and amongst God's people, since the house of God can refer both to the place where believers meet and to the household of God, the family of God's people. We need ever to remember that the church isn't just a social association of men and women, but also the very dwelling place of the living God. Now when Paul refers to the pillar and ground of the truth, he's stressing that the truth is only to be found among God's people. But God has revealed his truth to his people alone. And the church is both grounded on and a supporter of God's truth. And it's the duty of the church to defend that truth against all comers. And it can be inside the church, you know, that battles for the truth have to be fought. Now the final verse of 1 Timothy tells us this. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, 
received up into glory. But you know the great truth contained in this verse has been watered down within the church sometimes. For example, the men who wrote the two main commentaries that I looked up in sermon preparation for our studies in Timothy have both succumbed to what I would call a revisionist error, and I'll explain that in a moment. Now, it's believed that Paul is quoting here from an early Christian hymn which consisted of six lines about the Lord Jesus, which he prefaces by reminding his readers that believers are united in confessing the supreme importance of what has been revealed in the Gospel. As we've already seen this evening, when Paul speaks of mystery, he's referring to truth which was once hidden, but which has now been made manifest. For without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now one reason why the gospel is called the mystery of godliness is because it transforms those who believe it into people who then themselves strive to be godly. The first line of the hymn recites how God was manifest in the flesh, but God the Son assumed human form. The second line tells of how Christ was justified in the realm of the Spirit, when by his resurrection he was exalted. The third line most likely refers to how Christ's ascension was witnessed by two angels, as we find it recorded in Acts chapter 1. And the fourth line speaks of how the gospel had been spread. The fifth line speaks of how many unbelievers have put their faith in Christ. And the last line of how Christ is now exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so we can see, can we not, that this six-line hymn could be considered something of a confession or a creed. However, the error that I mentioned earlier is that many Bible verses have changed the last verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And they've changed it so that it's translated as who was manifest in the flesh rather than God was manifest in the flesh. This is a blatant attack on the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ and we must condemn it. Mm. And so if you have a Bible, a version of the Bible that doesn't follow the received text in this matter, then surely you should ask yourself whether it can be considered a trustworthy explanation, a translation. You see, there are many translations which we know attack the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in several places, not just here in 1 Timothy 3. We need to take an interest in this subject because there are people who will seek to do damage, shall I say, to our Saviour. Well, as we come to an end of our studies in 1 Timothy this evening, I trust that we might be clearer now in our minds as to the qualities that are to be looked for in those who are to hold office in the church. And whilst accepting that no man is perfect, we must nevertheless seek to ensure that any men who are appointed as elders or deacons and their wives match up to the standards set down in the scriptures. And I also trust that we will all take care to ensure that we only use faithful translations of the scriptures ever remembering that the divinity of our Saviour has been under attack since earliest times. 
and continues to be questioned today, both inside and outside the church. May we ever acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour and as our God. Amen. Amen.